Hello, everyone. Thank you. Thank you all for coming today and for joining us um, for this great book launch. Um, I am, my name is Rahaf Al-Dughli. I'm a lecturer in modern Middle Eastern history, and I'm today the chair of, uh, of this, uh, to launch this great book. Um, we will have, uh, first of all, I will introduce the speakers. Uh, and then we'll have 30 minutes for each to speak, and then we'll have uh, questions. Uh, first of all, let me, um, can I ask you to silence your phones first? And then uh, if you would like to um, tweet about this event, then this is great. Uh, just use the hashtag LSE Perlman. And uh, for our first speaker, Wendy Perlman, the author of this great book, uh, she is an associate professor of political science at Northwestern University, where she also holds the Martin and Patricia Koldig Outstanding Teaching Professorship. She has conducted research in Morocco, Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, German, Germany, Spain, Israel, and the West Bank and Gaza Strip. She has written two books and more than a dozen articles and book chapters about the Palestinian national movement, focusing on internal politics and the causes and consequences of political science, uh, violence, sorry. Mm -hmm. And uh, our second speaker, Malu uh, Halasai, she is Jordanian, Filipino, American writer and editor based in London. Born in Oklahoma, she was raised in Ohio and is a graduate of Bernard College, Columbia University. Her books include Serious Speaks, Art and Culture from the Frontline, Transit, uh, Transit Tehran, Young Iran and Its Inspiration, and the secret life of Syrian landry, intimacy, and design. Um, I will start with the first mm -hmm. uh, speaker, Wendy, and she will tell us about uh, her book and uh, its narrative and mm -hmm. the revolution. Uh, thank you so much. Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah. Great, thank you. I mean, it's such a, a joy uh, to be here, so thank you to all of the organizers. I never thought I would have a hashtag, LSE Perlman, so this is a, a pretty memorable day for, for me. So <laughs> thank you for, for putting me on the Twitter map, among other things. Um, uh, yeah, I'm delighted to talk about this book. It actually came out last June, so it's not quite a launch, but maybe a UK launch, so that's, so that's exciting. Um, uh, as was mentioned, I, uh, I've studied the Arab world for about 20 years. I began studying um, in 1995 during university semester abroad in North Africa and continued studying the Middle East and studying Arabic ever after that, eventually getting my PhD in political science with a focus on the Middle East. Um, so in 2011, when the Arab uprisings began, I was captivated as a regional specialist and probably like all people on the planet by these shows of people's power. And as the protests began in Tunisia and spread to Egypt and then Yemen and Bahrain and elsewhere, many Many eyes turned towards Syria, and my eyes turned towards Syria as well. As many Syrians themselves and outside observers said, Syria is a kingdom of silence. The people have been too intimidated by a history of state violence. The regime is too strong. The military is too infused with the regime. Many said protests might go everywhere else in the region, but not Syria. Syrians won't rise up. So when Syrians did rise up, defying those expectations, I really wanted to know how and why, and especially I wanted to know what it felt like to go out and protest, maybe for people who'd never imagined protesting, breaking through that barrier of fear. And I figured that there was no better way to find out what it was like 
than to go and ask Syrians themselves, to talk to them and collect their stories. So I followed the uprising from afar, from my home in Chicago for during the first year or so, and then summer 2012 I got my first chance to go and begin collecting Syrian stories. By that time, it was already too dangerous, at least for me, to go into Syria and do these interviews, have sort of frank conversations about politics and protest and the experience of it um, inside Syria. So I began to do interviews with those Syrians who had fled the country as refugees. I began in Jordan, uh, spending a few months basically interviewing every Syrian I could, beginning with a few contacts that then snowballed and so forth. And along the way, I tried to speak with um, people getting sort of the most varied sort of a uh, group of, of interviewees that I could, um, talking to people of different genders and socioeconomic classes, regions in Syria, um, and uh, uh, sectarian and religious background and so forth. Um, and continued with that process then for the, the next four years. I returned to Jordan in 2013 and then moved on to Turkey, eventually moved on to Lebanon, did some interviews in the United Arab Emirates, and then as the large wave of refugees moved on to Europe, I also did interviews in Sweden, Denmark, Germany, and also some in the United States. So over about four and a half years of interviewing, I spoke with some 300 plus Syrian individuals, as I said, trying to get that sort of a diverse a range as possible and moving around to different countries helped me to sort of tap into to different types of communities, different entry points into different social networks. But at the same time, the overwhelming majority of people with whom I spoke were critical of the regime of Bashar al-Assad. These were overwhelmingly people who participated in protests or supported them in some way, identified with the call for, for freedom and change. So in that way, I can say that the voices I collected in no way represent the full Syrian population. They don't represent the views of hardcore regime supporters. They also don't represent the views of the, and the experiences of those who remain in the country until this day, as I was only able to access people who'd left. So again, it doesn't represent all of Syria, but in some ways I feel like it, the voices I collected were able to represent a part of the population that meets with too few opportunities to represent itself, to say what this experience of protest, of war, of flight, mean to them in their own words. My interviews varied by 20 to something like 20 minute, 30 minute conversations that were on the quicker side to these long personal testimonials that unfolded over several hours with the person telling his or her story. Sometimes those stories lasted over days, sometimes over continents and years. As much as possible, I've tried to keep in touch with people and sometimes I've reconnected and re-interviewed folks that I met years later after they'd fled to a different country. And as I collected and collected these testimonials and slowly got them transcribed and, and translated typically from Arabic to English and saw them on paper, I saw how the individual narratives began to coalesce into a collective narrative. There was diversity and heterogeneity and difference and sometimes debate, but there was also a lot that was shared that coalesced to show something of a joint story of, uh, of, of unity despite the, despite the diversity. So I wrote the book or put the book together to express that joint collective story. The introduction is in my voice, providing some basic historical context about Syria and about the uprising and conflict. And the rest consists of eight parts that's exclusively a curation 
of excerpts from the testimonials that I gathered. The first part are stories and memories about life under the regime of Hafez al-Assad. The next part talks about how life changed after Bashar al-Assad came to power. Then there are stories about how the uprising began, first tentative demonstrations, how they spread over time, how they spread over space, how they became a national revolt that called first for reform and then for regime change. And then the subsequent sections talk about how the regime responded to those protests, how the opposition eventually took up arms, how the conflict escalated and evolved to this brutal, <coughs> brutally violent, multi-dimensional war that exists till today. Uh, Another part then towards the end talks about how people fled as refugees, their new lives as refugees, wherever they find themselves. And finally, reflections, a series of passages of Syrians kind of making sense of this whole historical arc, this whole historical journey. So if you open up the book, it basically goes name, story, name, story, name, story. Some are as short as a sentence or two. Some are as long as several pages, with the aim being to walk a reader through that history as at least one cross-section of Syrians have lived it. Uh, in that sense, my work in putting it together was different than my regular job as a political scientist. It was something of a maker of a mosaic. For me, each testimonial was like a precious stone. And my job was to cut some piece of it because they were all simply too long to show in full, to collect some piece that would capture something of the voice and the spirit of that individual, but also capture something fundamental about the Syrian story to help a general Western reader begin to understand. So cut some piece of it and, uh, and put the pieces in order so that the sum was larger than the parts, that it together told a larger story, a collective story. That's the vision and the logic and a bit of the process of, of putting the book together. So what I'd like to do now then is read you a series of, of excerpts. As the book is a book of testimonials, a talk about the book should capture some of those testimonials. So I'd like to take you through some of that arc, reading just a selection that gives you some sense of the human personalities and the human touch, and also some sense of the history that the voices together combine to create. So the first one I'll read is um, from the first part of the book titled Authoritarianism about stories of, of Hafez al-Assad's time. So as we know, there's a lot of scholarship and analysis about the strong authoritarian regime that Hafez al-Assad created after he seized power in 1970, the use of various institutions and strategies and coalitions to create a durable authoritarian regime. But the stories in this book really focus on the lived experience of authoritarianism. And the stories emphasize how a single ruling political party, a sense of a pervasive network of covert informants, a pervasive security apparatus, the kind of looming threat of political imprisonment and punishment for those who would criti criticize the regime, all combined to encourage, uh, to police society and encourage society in many ways to police itself. To express that, hear the words of Elias, a dentist from rural Hama. Elias told me, Syria had the appearance of being a stable country, but in my opinion, it wasn't real stability. It was a state of terror. Nobody trusted anybody else. Don't talk. The walls have ears. If anyone said anything out of the ordinary, others would suspect that he was a government informant. 
just trying to test people's reactions and gather a sense of what was going on. It's a regime based on command and obedience. Every state institution recreated the same kind of power. The president had absolute power in the country. The principal of a school had absolute power in the school. At the same time, the principal is terrified. Of whom? Of the janitor sweeping the floor because they're all government informants. Other stories emphasize how it was not only the sense of surveillance and security rule that created this obedience, but also corruption and co-optation, a system in which many felt it was simply in their own best livelihood interests to go along with the system. To express that, hear the words of Iham, remembering from his childhood. Iham said, The brainwashing process starts when you go to school. We love the leader, we love the regime. Without them, the country will collapse. You grow up with that in the back of your head, constantly reminding you that we are living due to the grace of the Assad family. But even as an innocent child, you see that the whole system just reeked. It fed on corruption and grew. If you want to get a passport, you have to bribe this guy and that guy and kiss that guy's ass. Excuse my language. From when you're little, you're taught that this is the only way to survive in this country. As an active member of the ruling party, you're going to get better grades, better chances for better schools or jobs. Everything is handled by how loyal you are to the regime. So you are raised on the principle that you have to show your loyalty. Stories in the second part of the, the book talk about how life changed after Bashar al-Assad came to power after the death of his father in the year 2000, and how many thought that this young, educated head of state would make reform, and he presented himself as a reformer and a modernizer. But many of the stories emphasize that where there was the most reform or change was in the economic realm and a shift from a state-dominated economy to a more market-oriented neoliberal economy that in many ways created new spaces for crony capitalism and led many people to feel like their lives were only getting worse as uh, social services withdrew and infrastructure crumbled and so forth. So to express that sense of change, here uh, the excerpt of Mohammed um, from the Damascus suburbs who said, Assad Sr. knew that if people were going out on the streets with no jobs, they were going to start protesting. His way of solving this problem was to dump them on the state. You didn't need to know economics to see that the state was already huge, the biggest employer in the country. The problem was just going to get worse and worse and one day explode. Assad Jr. came to power and listened to advisors who said, let's privatize. The only thing is that Syria suddenly came to be owned by two families and their friends. Everybody got a share based on how close they were to the ruling family. There was no trickle-down economy anymore. Public welfare went downhill. And then there was a drought, and peasants flooded the cities. 
the state couldn't manage people's needs. Once in 2006, I was pulling into a parking lot when this kid suddenly threw himself onto my car. Immediately, all of these police officers appeared. The kid wasn't hurt because the car wasn't moving very fast. The police told me, look, this is this kid's job. We'll help you, but we have to take him to the hospital. We took him to the hospital and x-rayed him, and it turned out that the kid was full of metal. He had plates here and there, all injuries from previous accidents. The nurses couldn't believe that he'd survived. The police officers came with me to the hospital, and then we all went to the police station. They said, look, we need to settle this. And you know how much they wanted? About $100. They divided it among themselves. Even at the police station, everybody was in on the plan and wanted a share. The kid got his share, and I told him, why didn't you just ask for the money? You didn't need to throw yourself at the car. You could see how desperate everyone was. Do I blame a police officer whose whole salary is $100 a month? And Bashar and his wife just kept dressing nicely, going out like cute royalty. Bashar thought, everybody loves me, and I have no problems. He had no clue. So these and many other stories give you some sense of what life was like in Syria before 2011, or at least some windows into it. And I'll paint a picture, I think, that makes it seem, in some ways, how amazing it was that people did go out into the streets in spite of it all. So the third part is titled Revolution, stories about how demonstrations got off the ground and especially what it felt like to those who participated. Here I'll share the words of Shireen, a mother. And Shireen said, Oppression was residing in us. It was part of our life, like air, sun, water. We didn't even feel it. Like air is there, and you never ask, where is the air? But then, in one second, in one shout, in one voice, you blow it up. You defy it and stand in front of death. Don't even imagine that it was easy to go out to a demonstration. No amount of courage allows you to just stand there and watch someone who has a gun and is about to kill you. But still, this incredible oppression made us go out. I encouraged my nieces and nephews to come with me to demonstrations. I felt that if they didn't try that experience, they'd be missing the real meaning of life. When you chant, you shudder, and your body rises, and everything you imagined just comes out. Tears come down, tears of joy, because I broke the barrier. I am not afraid. I am a free being. Sadness and happiness and fear and courage they're all mixed together in that voice, and it comes out strong. Before the revolution, Syria was just the place where I lived, but it didn't belong to me. When the revolution began, 
I discovered that Syria was my country. I would ask people to describe their first demonstrations. And <coughs> what people would say to me most frequently was, La Tusif. It's simply indescribable. You can't put into words what that feeling was like. And I would say, okay, I'm writing a book. Can you work with me here to try to put it into words? And people would say things like, it was the first time I breathed, the first time I felt like a citizen. One man said, it was better than my wedding day. <laughs> and when my wife heard that, she refused to speak to me for a month. <laughs> so my favorite sense of this, it was like the first time is here, what I'll share with you, words from Rima, a writer from Sueda. And Rima said, I was in a demonstration and I started to whisper, freedom. And then I started to hear myself repeating, freedom, freedom, freedom. And then I started shouting, freedom. And I thought, this is the first time I have ever heard my own voice. And I told myself that I would never let anyone steal my voice again. The next sections of the book are called repression and after that militarization. And it talks about how the regime responded to largely peaceful protests with various forms of violence and how the opposition eventually took up arms, first in a more defensive maneuvers and then in offensive maneuvers. And those who did take up arms explain that, that choice, that decision. Here are the words of a free Syrian army fighter who goes by the alias Captain, who said, when demonstrations began, security forces came. We agreed that if they were going to shoot bullets, then we needed weapons, too. We were only chanting in the streets. We could have chanted for the rest of our lives without anyone even paying attention to us. But when the regime started attacking us, a lot of people who were on the sidelines started to join and protest, too because of the blood. Blood is what moves people. Blood is the force of the revolution. As the armed rebellion proliferated and the regime escalated its reprisals, state and non-state actors became involved in the cracks of an increasingly fragmented war with their various agendas and goals and competing patrons. And the next parts of the book talk about the experience of civilians living war, in many ways how they became normalized to the sheer terror of the ability and the realization that they could die at any time, especially from aerial bombardment. To express that here, Abu Feras from Idlib said, at first one or two people were killed, then 20. Then it became normal. If we lost 50 people, we'd say, thank God, it's only 50. It's been so long since I heard that someone died of natural causes. Also on living war, Kareem, a doctor from Homs, who said, my son spent the first years of his life stuck inside because of the curfew and the bombing. He had no contact with anyone but his parents and grandparents. He was two years old when he saw another child for the first time. He went up to him and touched his eyes 
because he thought that he was a doll. From living war to flight, here Talia describing her last days in Syria. She said, the night before I left was the longest night of my life. I was alone with the kids and the planes were in the sky all night. The sound of planes is scarier than the sound of barrel bombs because you hear them and wonder when the bombs will drop. The waiting is harder than the actual attack. I didn't know if we'd leave the next day or if this would be the night that we died. I had seen children torn in pieces before, but I wasn't strong enough to see my own kids in that state. I needed to get them to safety. The kids woke up and I got them dressed. I got two pieces of paper and wrote our names and phone numbers and put them in their pockets. That way, if somebody got killed, people would know their identities. I waited for the driver outside. I kissed the walls on the street because I knew that I was never coming back to them. In tandem with these experiences of living war and of flight are these stories that, that show this increasingly fragmented and complicated political landscape of new actors with new goals. But in spite of it all, we also see civic activists struggling to continue their work, to build a dream of a free Syria, many doing it for as long as they possibly can, and to capture some of that complicated politics of the uprising and war. I'll share words from Hussein from Aleppo. Hussein was a playwright before he became an activist, said, the Free Syrian Army launched its attack on Aleppo and took over the poorer half of the city. As revolutionary activists, the most important thing we could do was offer people an alternative to the regime. We had to provide food, shelter, services. We had to create a new system. We held elections for local councils, the first of their kind in Syria. I invested all of my political experience into it because I believed that we had to make that work. We walked around neighborhoods all day long, talking about our goals and our principles. People still appreciated us back then. A man donated his house for our use, and it became like a beehive of activity. More than 30 of us slept on the floor on foam mattresses. Everyone took turns cleaning and cooking. One guy was rich, so he'd buy kebab. Others were poor. They could only afford to make eggs. Whenever people went to pray, I'd keep doing whatever I was doing. No one ever pressured me to join. They knew that I'm secular, but treated me with respect as an old man who left his family to help the revolution. There wasn't religious extremism in the beginning. It took effort to get people to become extremists. I think the impetus was from outside the country, and money and weapons were the main drivers. Once, three Islamists, an Egyptian, a Tunisian, and a Syrian, wanted to take coffee from a 14-year-old boy selling it on the street and pay him later. The boy selling it said, even if the Prophet Muhammad came, I wouldn't give it to him on credit. 
the Islamists considered that blasphemy, and they killed the boy. After that, we created a movement against Islamization, and we called it Enough is Enough. We, created organized, we or started organizing civic campaigns. One was called Don't Be Part of the Chaos. It urged people not to drive cars without license plates. Another was called I Want My School. It asked battalions to return to schools that they had seized as military centers. It was around that time that ISIS arrived in Aleppo. They started kidnapping journalists and activists. We began working in secret. I had to move to a neighborhood run by a warlord who would not let ISIS in and promised to protect anyone living under his control. I faced a dilemma. I didn't want to ally with any armed group, but I was accepting protection from a killer. People were going to consider that I was on his side. And that was the point when I felt that I had become useless. I decided to leave Syria. I no longer had a purpose for staying. To conclude, I'll share one voice from the section on reflections. Here, Adam, a media organizer from Latakia, reflected on this arc. And he said, one of the most profound things that I've learned from this experience called the Syrian war is that the process of finding out what a country needs is never clean. Of course, when you're in a stable country with functioning institutions, it's easy to have a moral code. But these values are only possible because other people did dirty things to put that system in place. We opened a Pandora's box. We had this innocent, childlike interest to see what was inside the box. We thought we'd get a present, and what we got was all the evil in the world. Now we need to close the box again, but it's going to take a while. Now I'm working with an NGO that helps the free media inside Syria. I see my job as trying to support people who want to make their dreams come true. But I'm too old to dream now. In a month and a half, I'll be 29. I'll end there. Thanks. Thank you very much, Wendy, for this kind of very emotional, like you took us on a journey <laughs> yeah. um, through your voice and through the words of these uh, speakers. Mm -hmm. So uh, shall we move to Mallory? Um, well, I, I was told that I'm only going to speak for 10 minutes, <laughs> and uh, I have really just a series of questions for you, Great. Wendy. Um, they'll just come in my 10 minutes. <laughs> um, in my long years of writing and editing books uh, on the Middle East, once the violence begins, it's difficult to hear uh, ordinary people. What struck me about your book um, is that it has, it has drama in part uh, because it follows the trajectory of Syria's seven-year-long conflict. But there is also a compelling way the individual testimonies are edited mm -hmm. and uh, a straightforwardness in what people are saying, where they say it, uh, when they say it, and how they say it. 
So I'm curious first uh, as to why you picked this form. Um, I know uh, in my in, in in researching and looking at your work mm-hmm. that you did a, a book from uh, 2003, Occupied Voices: Stories of Everyday Life from the Second Intifada, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and it was reviewed by Penny Johnson. Then she was at Beersage. She is a, an editor and writer. She works with Raja Shahada. Mm-hmm. Um, she said that per- Perlman is an intelligent and sympathetic listener, and her matter-of-fact presentation is effective in capturing the mixture of dramatic danger and the mundane everyday concerns that characterize civilian life in the prolonged and violent crisis for that book of the Second Intifada. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that is something that you do in We Crossed a Bridge, um, and uh, although it, it's a different conflict on many mm-hmm. levels. Yeah. So again, I go back to uh, why voices and uh, you know within the context of this Middle Eastern struggle. There is also a, an anthropological tradition of voices, whether one thinks of Oscar Lewis and the first person accounts of the Sanchez family in Mexico in a Mexico City slum. And then there is also in the U.S. a popular uh, tradition of plain speaking and the oral testimonies of gathered by Stugs Turkle, which were recorded and then transcribed. Um, and this was someone who worked in Chicago near Evanston, yeah. where Northwestern is located. So I was hoping you would address that area of your work and why this particular form. Um, and not only because it gives a platform to the people that uh, you interviewed, but also I was curious what it did for you, you know, in terms of your work and your writing. Um, I was also uh, uh, struck uh, that um, that uh, oh, the, I was also struck that this form is is sort of becoming popularized now, and I was thinking about a new book that's coming out. I think the launch is next week. No turning back: Life, Loss, and Hope in Wartime Syria by Rania Abu Zaid, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, this also opens with a key. Uh, at the beginning of the book, short bios uh, introducing the participants of the book. Although Abu Zaid is a journalist and she uh, she's not an academic, mm-hmm. so she she uses their voices more within a journalistic con- uh, context. Um, so I was and, and another reason I was wondering if there was an emphasis on using voices, bringing these voices to the fore, is because there seemed to be a failure in mainstream news in reporting about Syria. Uh, particularly during the early early days or early years of the conflict, there was such a flurry in citizen journalism accounts in writing and on film. But because mainstream news organizations um, and because mainstream news organization reporters were either barred from Syria on the ground and eventually it was too dangerous for foreign reporters to be there, um, there was always this question about verification. And... um, so, you know, is this really true? That's what you see in the New York Times or the Guardian. We can't verify this. So I was just wondering, uh, for, 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 for those of us that wanted a fuller story about Syria, we had to look elsewhere. But so I was sort of wondering if this form of using voices is um, somehow trying to counter that trend. 
And then finally, uh, I remembered returning home to London after my book tour for my novel, Mother of All Pigs. Mm -hmm. And a copy of your book was waiting for me. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember just sitting down and reading it in, in just like one sitting. It was so dramatic. It was so compelling. Um, I'd just been in Georgetown with an academic who had been uh, rescued from Al-Raqqa. Mm -hmm. And I had been giving lectures across the, straight, uh, across the U.S., talking about new art, film, and writing by Syrian women in, in light of the fall of that city. And because of my own interest in Syrian women's activism, I think that's why I found the book so pertinent uh, to the type of work that I was curious about and that I wanted to do. And I also detected in the book what I thought was how you were an honest, open listener. Mm -hmm. That I felt that, that you made a space for those voices, that you had created that platform. And so to conclude, thinking about the storytelling aspect and the drama of the book, I thought then, and I still think it now, that we crossed a bridge and it trembled, should be put on the stage mm -hmm. or made into somehow a, a radio an adaptation of it for radio, because that's really the way one gets a wider audience for this material, uh, for material that's considered so politi political. And I, and I had just been reading that, you know, there's an all-dancing, singing versions of a Studs Terkel musical. And that's not what I'm suggesting <laughs> yeah. for your book, but I felt that these voices needed to be heard across a wider audience than just Middle Eastern studies. So that's my 10-minute bit <laughs> contribution. Thank you. Thank you very much, Melo. Do you, yeah, would you like to return to, to now? Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> maybe you can go ahead in that way. I'll, I'll respond to both yeah, comments okay. together. Yeah, yeah. Um, now we have around um, 45 minutes for questions. Would you like? Uh, yeah, so would you? Um, it's now you. You chose to, yeah, if you have any questions. So we will have uh, three questions together. Uh, okay. So maybe maybe, yeah, maybe she should respond. Yeah, I, thought, and then so go I thought that you were going to talk for, for a bit, but oh, not. Okay. No, yeah. no, no, maybe I'll, I will go ahead yeah. and respond. Yeah. That's right, because I was also a lot. Okay. So, well, th this, is, this is amazing. So I was, maybe I was just trying to stall so I could get, get <laughs> some time to, to think through all of, all, of, all of this. So this is um, no, tremendously thoughtful. Um, Comments. So, yeah, thanks. On, on the form, so when I began the project, I didn't really necessarily have a vision of a form in, in mind. I just knew that I wanted to collect Syrian testimonials because I had some faith and trust that there would be amazing stuff if you just had a tape recorder and, and, and gave people space to, to speak. Um, and, and as I listened, I discovered that was absolutely the, yeah. the, the case. And, um, and what I loved most about doing these interviews was doing really open-ended interviews. I never had a questionnaire. Each interview was different. I basically asked some variation on the question of what has this experience been like for you? And then my job exactly was to be a listener, was to, to, to just, as people talked, try to poke every so often and say, you know, my follow-up questions were things like, uh-huh, uh-huh, and then what? And what was that like? And what did you mean by that? And, and just um, every so often try to get people to elaborate on, on certain things. And then maybe when um, conversations sort of veered in different directions and veered off into geopolitics and people were talking about, well, Iran and Russia and the United States, I would try to bring them back to their, their own experience. And, you know, certain, you can get a certain amount of geopolitical commentary, but 
as a political scientist, that's also my, my day job. So I was just sort of trying to get the most sort of rich, yeah, the most rich personal um, detail, just sort of steer the conversation in that direction. Um, and it was tremendously rich what, what came out. And then as I slowly got this material from audio recordings to the written space, I really actually went through a few different formats of thinking what to do with the material. And to, to confess, the first, my first trial at, at writing this up had a much larger role for myself. I was sort of put myself in as the omniscient narrator, and I think it was my instinct as an academic that, you know, my voice should be there, that I, I'm there to gather material that that's data, and I interpret it for a reader. So I was sort of the omniscient narrator that said, you know, on March 15th, 2011, calls emerge on Facebook for protests, and then sort of, Abu Muhammad was there, and then I have a big Who chunk, knows? yeah, a big <laughs> chunk of a quotation from somebody who was there, and then I... Just like any journalist would have done. Yes, yeah, and yes. In the context of an article or an extended essay for a book. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It was my voice was there as the, as the framework, and the testimonials were there as sort of demonstrating the points that I was essentially making, my analysis, my interpretation. And I put a lot of the book together in that format, and then I realized my voice wasn't necessary mm -hmm. at all, that my job would could perhaps be to choose excerpts and put them in a sequence, but the voices themselves provided not only humanizing detail about what it was like to live these events, they also provided the analysis. People were not just saying what happened to them, they were reflecting upon it in a way in which they were also making sense of it and interpreting it. So there was the analysis and the insight and the human detail and the emotion and the drama was all there in the testimonials. And my job was to collect them and present them, but otherwise really get out of the way because my voice wasn't doing, was doing more harm than, than good. And, and, and I sort of had the, slowly came the vision that they were, they were, it was most powerful to, to, to engage with them directly, but of course it's not fully directly because I'm there as curator, but, um, but the stories were so tremendously powerful that an insertion of myself only diluted that power. It didn't, it didn't serve it. So it was a bit of trial and error that I came to appreciate, which was probably always there from the beginning through the sheer power, but it was my own journey to really fully appreciating it once I so the paper. drama of the of the of the of the interviews were immediately apparent to you. Um, they, they often they often were, but there's also there's you know there's something that you're experiencing in the moment when you're talking with someone, and something else that you experience when you read a transcript, yeah. and then there's something else you experience when you begin to put the transcripts against each other and see how one fills in the gaps and and one. Uh, and how they play off e each other as a series of stories, but um, but for sure the, the 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 power was there. The power was absolutely so. There. Was there a really intense editing process? Yeah, the, the editing process was came chiefly in the fact that when I had the full transcript. So sometimes an interview could be four hours, and the transcript could be forty thousand words. This entire book is about fifty-five thousand words. So I have something like eight hundred thousand words worth of of testimonials. So the editing, the, the drama, the editing process is to whittle this down into something that's manageable. So I had a, um, I use this software program called Scrivener, if any of you guys have, have used that, it was a way of sort of putting, um, of, of I would, you know, for example, all of the various stories about what people, what, what demonstrating was like, or stories from different you know, I have a whole series of stories from Dara because I spent a lot of time in Jordan and I got the real, 
different, different reflections of how that first, the first sort of major street protest on March 18, 2011 kicked off there. Or stories about homes or stories about the use of social media or stories about uh, strategy or stories about how information circulated or stories about living under bombardment and, or stories, now I have many stories about people fleeing to Europe on, across the Mediterranean that would sort of cut, cut those pieces and essentially put them all in, in folders so that I could sort of see them all, all together. And then, and then in some ways choosing, the, I might have had maybe 10 or 15 testimonials often that described a very similar experience and they all couldn't go in, unfortunately. And that becomes the sort of yeah. painful process of, of they all can't go in and, and then I would choose on the basis of which story might have maybe had the most detail or also trying to judge the, um, or weigh the, the other kind of competing uh, priorities of having a diversity of voices. So if I had several people, but one was a woman and I had a lack of female voices in that section, that would be a female voice or had various, but one was a rural voice as opposed to an urban voice. So there were various different things of, have, of going for diversity, but also for representativeness and also creating a coherent story. So there's a lot of trial and error of putting things in and then taking things out and putting a sentence back in and then cutting a sentence out because that sentence repeats what's so forth. There was a lot of, a lot of the back and forth and that's the, the creative the creative process of, of, a, of making a text hold together. Yes. I think yeah. here is like, if I may yeah, comment like, and reflect for five minutes sure, on the book, please, yeah. like, since I'm Syrian and I'm also an academic and working on the Ba'ath ideology, mm -hmm. and what, what is fascinating about this book is that when I read the narratives, or uh, if yeah. I may say the stories or the yeah. testimonies, I kind of share with a lot of these narratives and... And it kind of gives you a sense of how strong the national or the path ideology that was propagated by this regime that made us all share the same thing. Mm. Which is at the same time that this book is not only about giving voice or a platform mm -hmm. to these people, but also give you a sense of how the path ideology itself and how the regime kind of propagated and perpetuated a certain a, a, a kind of ideology that made us Syrians kind of share the same experiences like we are machines, if I may say so. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, and I think you mentioned it that there are a kind of 15 testimonies that share the same thing and mm -hmm. you kind, you had to cut it out, but it's also interesting yeah. to other academics or, or, or for those people who want to specialize in the Middle East or the, in Syria, uh, uh, particularly that to see how uh, uh, the regime acted in a, t in, in a way that is, is strategically very organized, not like not doing anything for granted. You know, there was a certain policy uh, 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 that it's a militarized state, uh, which acted in a certain way and to make us believe in a certain way and to make us define our belonging to Syria in a certain way, which is being loyal to the path. Uh, uh, being hero, and also I had another interesting question, yeah. which is, do you think there is a sense of uh, how women or the feminine voices kind of interpret their belonging to Syria is different from men? Yeah. Do you think there was a kind of uh, a sense of that our belonging or women's belonging to Syria is different from men's, or how they kind of interpret their experience or the relation to the revolution that is different between men and women? Do you think, did you sense uh -huh. that? Or do you think the national struggle kind of unified the voices or unified uh, the sense of 
who are we? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's another terrific question. Uh, what, I mean, just in your your first point in terms of the sort of the strength of, of Baathist ideology, I mean, I think that for me comes most clearly in, in in the book, and then many stories that didn't make it into the book that were similar, um, especially about people's recollections of school yeah. and curriculum and the, and the daily assembly yeah. and the uniform people had to wear and the sort of the authority structure and the yeah. thing so that that um, very much sort of you get a sense of that as a socializa- socialization mechanism yeah. of creating sort of loyal yeah. loyal s- yeah. and it becomes socialized into what you're supposed to do yeah. as a citizen yeah. um, as far as the it's an interesting question in terms of men's and women's experiences what struck me most about especially stories about protest and the participation in protest was truly how universal it is and we were speaking about this mm-hmm. earlier that, that there's that I think in there, there are points of, of, of this experience of war and conflict where, there, where differences really emerge. There are debates about whether about the use of arms. There are debates about um, the, the, the vision of the future. There, the, as, as, as sort of the war evolved, I think you see lots of different sorts of cracks. Yeah, yeah. But the moment of, of protest was a moment, I, at least as, 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 it, as I gathered it from people's stories, of a such remarkable unity that that across class, across gender, gender, across backgrounds, a moment of, of, um, of such sort of collective yeah. solidarity and euphoria and really a, a moment of patriotism. Yeah. So there, Shireen is saying there, as, as other people said, you know, before I thought that Syria was for Assad, it wasn't for me. Yeah. And at that moment, yeah. I claimed my country and said, no, Syria is for me and it's for us. And there are other people who talked about sort of what they said as a remarkable kind of patriotism. So there's there's a, a, a passage from somebody who was involved in sort of the first protests in, in Dara talking about, you know, he's before people from Damascus looked down on Dara City and Dara yeah, City looked yeah, down yeah. on the countryside. And he said there was a moment, he said, I never imagined that, that Kurds in the north or somebody in Dara Zor would go out saying, you know, with blood and soul we sacrifice for you, Dara. <laughs> and because that's the moment, that's what happened. We discovered each other. Um, and... That, I think, is part of the, the beauty. So there's, there's certainly differences, but that in particular moment, the sense of what belonging in a national patriotic yeah. sense to a dream of a free place, I think was, it's remarkable in the degree it was, it was shared. Um, at least that's my impression, having talked to a, a cross-section of folks. Thank you. Okay, so now we'll move to questions. Uh, uh, we will, ha- mm-hmm. yeah? Okay, sorry, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'll collect three. Any? Okay, yeah. So here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, two and here. Okay. Uh, First of all, thank you for coming and thank thank you you for writing this book as well. Thank you. Um, So, my question is about the people you interviewed that supported the regime. And uh, what, uh, so what kind of perspective did they offer or any insights to the story? Uh, thank you so much for your comments. Uh, my question is about whether you have any techniques to avoid essentializing the Syrian story. So, um, especially given your positionality, which okay. I appreciate that you've been very reflexive about, um, because you open up with stories of mm-hmm. poverty, oppression, mm-hmm. governmentality, to use Foucault's term, and we know that all these things are not essential to mm-hmm. Syria, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but oftentimes, when we cover Middle East. And Syria, we are very, or they are very essentialized. Uh-huh. Uh, so, just wondering how you've been going about that. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you very much, mm-hmm. uh, Nasser Kalamu. Uh, two points. 
um, uh, I take it for granted that there is authenticity in the voices that mm -hmm. you did wha from whichever uh, background they are. Uh, but also, uh, I mean, uh, voices can be genuine, uh, genuine even before the revolution. Uh, before the revolution. Genuine, okay. Yeah. Uh, some time ago, could be 25 years ago, I was going a uh, taxi from Damascus to, uh, uh, to the airport, mm -hmm. and then we were stopped on the way by a motorcade, about 40 brand new Mercedes, and then the taxi driver pulled me to speak. I mean, I don't speak to taxi drivers, but that's what mm -hmm. he said. Why we are inviting the East German president here since we have 40 Mercedes here, we should invite the West German president, not the East German president. So no comment from me. In other words, it could be a genuine comment, but you don't want to be uh, uh, taken you know, into an internal dispute. That's one. Uh, 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 another one that I encountered four months ago by a Syrian refugee I met in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And basically he came to me and he said, I, five, I have five kids, two of them in school, I'm going to withdraw them from school. So we're coming here to the protest, not against the, the regime in Damascus, against UN agencies mm. and donors. If, because I need $200 or I will get like $80. So I'm going to take them, another protest, and not send them to school. Uh, it would be better. I, d I can't read or write, but I, uh, uh, education is not important. I can we they can survive without education, but they cannot uh, survive without money. So I'm, I'm to counter your point about now desperation after the armed struggle or the, the extremist and the regime mm -hmm. and whatever. So uh, I didn't see any uh, hope in, in matters what whatever. Is there a hope that you, s you saw p post, uh, you know, whatever, post uh, end of the civil war? Great. Um, all tough questions. Was a tough, a tough crowd. So um, the, the first, and the, the, I'll just go in order on, on people who supported the regime. And most people, this is really a sort of a revolutionary narrative. So m most of the people I talked to, overwhelmingly, were were people who I who are critical of the regime. And that was because I really began with an interest in protest. And maybe to go back to the question of, the, the, I wasn't necessarily beginning with a form. I didn't actually even know if this would be an academic book or a non-academic book. My first interest was protest because I'm somebody who's I've studied social movements and protest dynamics in my academic work, and I was absolutely fascinated by the question of what brings people to participate in high-risk dissent, which is a universal question in all types of revolutions or protest situations. So in many ways, began with that academic question of maybe was there something we can learn about protest by asking people how they came to protest. And as the, the conflict evolved and we moved from protest to various other phases, the, the book took on a different form to try to be more sweeping than just the moment of protest. But because I began in that way, somewhat my, my research networks always became stronger and stronger in sort of circles of, of the opposition. One person introduced me to another, introduced me to another. And because for me, my foremost goal was to um, do interviews in a place where, where the interviewee felt comfortable and, and comfortable and safe. It was always best to be to find a new person to interview via a person of trust. So um, so one person who you know, came to trust me would introduce me to another person and because the, the third person trusted the so forth, it was always these sort of networks of trust, which was unfortunate in some ways that it tended to limit, I limit the circles and it became it more difficult to break into other circles, although I would always keep trying to find a new entryway into another mm -hmm. circle. In some ways it just reinforced um, uh, 
I mean, as much as possible, still getting going for diversity, it it made it more difficult to break into um, into more loyalist circles. But from those who I have interviewed who either identified supporting the regime or sort of in that gray, you know, Ramadi sort of space. Um, you, you hear, I mean, I hear, typically hear certain kinds of, of, of narrative, almost certain scripts of things like, you know, it, it wasn't that bad, life was okay, it was a good country, and then these people came along and they didn't ask our permission and they ruined the country and they wrecked everything. And um, that, that sort of, uh, I mean, that's not the sort of the hardcore supporters, but those who are much more ambivalent or critical of, of, um, of the uprising. And that, and that I hear, I feel like I hear increasingly with, with, with time. Um, so, um, but I, but it's, I, I, I think that it is, I, I look forward to other people doing work in a much better way than I could uh, to get at the stories of regime supporters, what's really in the, the hearts and the minds and the experiences of people from a, a range of, from a range of perspectives or points come to have adopted that, that political stance. I'm tremendously curious myself, but my own work hasn't really allowed me to, to, to say much, unfortunately. Um, about essentializing is a really, really great point and a really tough thing that I, that I struggle with because of my position. I'm an American, I'm a, you know, an academic who studies the Middle East, I'm always an outsider, I'm always limited. As much as I try to spend just a lot of time listening, that's layers of complicated sort of position I'll never be able to, to overcome. So as far as with this work, again, I've always been drawn to the most personal of anecdotes because I think that when, when someone's telling a real personal story in detail, that's one way of getting away to some degree from sort of the abstractions to, to the real, to look for to look for politics and look for experience and look for these broad abstract concepts like culture or religion or gender in the lived experience of someone telling a really specific story. So my own hope has been to try to collect those stories and present those stories. It doesn't mean that that's free from the essentializing, but in some way brings it to, to the nitty-gritty of life. So, for example, in the, in, the, in the first part, there are stories about you know, a young guy um, from Daria who loses his ID card and gets called in, you know, the, the, like the horror of losing his ID card and gets called into a branch office and has to negotiate with someone about losing his ID card. Like, there's a lot about the structure of power in this very vivid anecdote about when he loses his ID card. And then, um, and then other, other types of stories like that, um, I've, uh, that's what I've searched for and that's what I've tried to, to present. And otherwise it's just, you know, you try to be as, as critical as possible and give, the, and give the work also to, to people who have different positions to read and get their feedback, so to get feedback as much from Syrians themselves. And, um, and for me some of the most gratifying comments have been when, when, when Syrians have read the book and one of my sort of favorite moments was, this, was when a Syrian colleague read the book and she was like, there's nothing new here. <laughs> She's basically like, we know all of this. I live this, my friends live this. And I was like, phew. You know, for me, I was like, that's a relief I got. If I got the story as right as I possibly can, when a Syrian's like, so, so what? You know, so uh, that, that's what I was going for. I don't know if I've achieved it, and I know there's a lot of problematics. No, no, but, but, that's, but that's what I, that's what always what I was, was going for. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, can voices be about, is there, is there hope? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, and clearly the book is much longer than what I was able to present. There's absolutely hope where I don't think people would get out of bed in the morning. I mean, given the huge amount of, I mean, unspeakable 
violence and pain and loss, whether people have experienced direct violence, indirect violence, or simply watching from afar as your as the country is destroyed. I mean, there's such tremendous loss there. But if, if citizens are still getting up and getting out of bed and trying to live better lives, and I see this in the, sort of the range of people's experiences among, among refugees and really the most dire situations to better situations um, of trying to, um, you know, trying to continue people's schooling, getting married and having children, get, hoping for the best for their families, struggling to learn Swedish or German, getting job retraining. Um, you know, if people continue on, then there, I think, is in hope and resilience in that by, by definition. Um, um, there, there's, I think, a, a lot of understandable, understandable despair and depression there too. Um, but without hope, we wouldn't even be seeing people tell their stories. I think. I think that also that uh, people here should look at the British Council's uh, Creative Syria. Uh, a web page on their website mm -hmm. and you'll see that there are some projects that are going on now that are really interesting. The British Council had like five groups from Lebanon that are run by a whole different range of NGOs uh, based there, whether Egyptian or Belgium or theater groups and they are, are working with refugees on remarkable levels, whether it's, it's uh, a program that has women who are illiterate learning how to read and write, and then they want to perform. So there is a range of new cultural initiatives. I'm not saying that's the only thing, but there are pockets of hope. You know, and I would absolutely, I mean, and, and Mao's work, I think, captures that as, you know, also beautifully in terms of this kind of renaissance of, of free expression in every realm of filmmaking to music to poetry to people writing on Facebook or blogging. I mean, that, uh, sort of that, 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 that expression that so many people are engaging in. Um, that not to say that people weren't engaging before, but the sheer sort of scale of people who maybe didn't before now finding a way to, to say what's, to express themselves in different ways, it's also, I think, tremendously yeah. inspiring, and that's a space of, of hope. So I would agree yeah. there. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. We have these. We have four. Okay. Sure. Those four. Yeah. Your talk. Um, so, and uh, basically, I'm an Oxford student. I'm <laughs> writing a thesis on Syrian artists. Oh. This place, Syrian artists, yeah. and I, I came across a lot of them here in the UK, and I've interviewed them. So. I was wondering whether you um, came across artists as uh -huh. well and what kind of narratives emerged. And uh -huh. also, I completely understand in terms of positionality because I'm the same as a Western researcher writing about Syrian artists. Um, I believe it's, easily, it's easy to fall into the narrative of it's only dissident art, you know, because there's also... It's only what art? I'm sorry? And because in Syria it's much more complicated, the political positioning of artists, so I came to appreciate that. So I was wondering what, what's your experience in this sense. Thank you. Okay, the we have here and okay. Yeah. Hi, and... Um, Thank you for your talk, and um, I really, really enjoyed the book, and you did such a fantastic job of giving voice 
um, and kind of presenting these beautiful individual stories of um, conflict and hope as well. Um, and uh, moving from that, what I want to say is, do you think mainstream journalism has almost failed in its presentation of the Syrian crisis? Um, there's been so much focus on extreme violence and I don't haven't seen any narratives about the local coordination committees and these democratic bottom-up processes that were occurring in the midst of crisis. Um, it takes you have to have to really dig to find this stuff. Um, and yeah, as we as you just touched on as well, there has been too much focus on the abstractions and the geopolitics mm -hmm. in um, all the media presentations. So I think this has also, in my view, kind of led to a sense of fatigue of the Syrian crisis. And how do we kind of um, reclaim that and kind of reclaim the narrative in, in the media and in the mainstream. Um, so I've got a question, but it has kind of two um, sub-questions yeah. in it. So Rima from Sueda okay. said, I will never let anyone steal my voice again. Yeah. And that was at the beginning of the revolution. Do you think her voice really has any way now? Do you think it still exists? with all the opposition leaders funded from lots of different countries and lots of different uh, armed groups down in there in Syria. And then leads to the second question, when you were just talking now about how people in Damascus look down at the people mm. in Dara, people look in Dara city look mm. down at the countryside people, mm. right? And then you said you, they never thought that there would be people that, um, in North or mm -hmm. Kurds saying, yeah. we would sacrifice for you, Dara. Mm -hmm. What happened from yeah. then, in 2011, to now, having, for example, Jaish, Jabhat uh, Tahrir Islam, Jabhat Tahrir Sham against Hayat Tahrir Sham, the Syrian Democratic Forces fighting against Arabic forces backed by Russia or whatever. In Ghouta, is the same. Lots of different factions are fighting against each other. From 2011, uh, hearing these voices to now, what happened really, actually, in your opinion, after interviewing all these people? Mm -hmm. I hope that he's going to answer the question, right? Because your hand just <laughs> shot through the roof. No? <laughs> Take it away, Omar. <laughs> I'll give you just a, a way out. <laughs> okay. No. no, but I'm I'm actually also following up on the on the question about Great. news media as well. Yes. And I I I'm wondering in yeah. the talks that you're giving yeah. and in uh, whether on on mm -hmm. social media, let's say in the promotion of the book or in the talks, whether people discuss you as a medium and expect like all the problematics of news media representation are also projected on on you particularly mm -hmm. in relation to what is now what we can now call whataboutism which so, sort of brings out what about this and what about that as if to silence voices that that have spoken thank you Oh gosh, like these are <laughs> the questions just get harder and harder. Man. <laughs> um, so one, the question about um, in, with artists. I mean, you're you're actually much better qualified to talk in terms of. Um, <laughs> so maybe that that one. Maybe I'll just punt to the yeah. real expert. Yeah. Oh, do you want me to do it? Yeah, now? please. Okay. <laughs> I think that when you're going to talk about art inside the regime, you really have to look at uh, the way the regime co-opted culture mm -hmm. in terms of how it co-opted culture for its own propaganda. Now, I, I, th there are very few sources that can really talk about that 
in terms of media, in terms of soap operas, there's Donatella della Rata. But in terms of the art spaces, whether we're talking about galleries, that's something I think that you have to go to individual galleries. I don't think there are many gallerists or artists working inside the regime. I don't know. But definitely uh, the Atassis are in the UAE, um, and there are, there are various gallery, galleries here and galleries that you can talk to. When I did uh, Sirius Speaks Art and Culture from the Frontline, someone, an American journalist asked me why I didn't include regime art in the book. And I said, well, actually, the really interesting art, like the really interesting voices, are coming from the people who are involved in the protests or the dissident, that dissident community. So I mean, so I mean, you can look at regime art, and uh, but it, it has its own. A whole study has to be made there. Right now, I think in terms of the the art that's being made or the art that's being done in these various projects in Lebanon. Uh, people are using art and culture as a way of kind of uh, kick-starting uh, uh, Syrian life again uh, and seeing what the aspirations of the people who have been brought down so low by the violence, how they can regain their lives. I think for us from the regime, you can't follow the channels, the Syrian the state-sponsored channels. The TV channels, they are always, you can see, if you, if you know Arabic, you will, you will be able, yeah, yeah, you will be able to get into that. So, but, yeah, but, but I think, as a Syrian, and I understand, mm -hmm. I don't think there is a lot of studies, academic studies, that are already published on, on regimes art, so you would be the first one. Mm -hmm. I don't know how good it is. Yeah. <laughs> or, um, or Miriam Cook's work, of well, course, too. Yeah. yeah, Miriam Cook's work. Uh, uh, and Miriam yeah. Cook is about... Cook, it's yeah. about well, her first, her first work, I, I mean... Yeah, but, uh, her latest book is really about dissident art and culture. Right, but the, the first book sort of before... Bef yeah, maybe before, before, yeah. before 2000. Give some sense of, I mean, the, but this whole, the idea of, of either regime trying to co-opt or the sort of the, you know, the... Um, yes. Yeah, or I mean, Lisa Wadeen has Lisa a bit Wadeen, of, yeah. on, on the yeah. art too. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, my own—I have maybe some people who did engage in some sort of artistic work, but I had, didn't really look at you know people who really identify yeah. and their professional yeah. life is on uh, art. I mean, I actually think I've, I have an, uh, one of the interview that comes to, to mind is um, uh, a guy who was a—he he sort of worked as a graphic artist. He always wanted to be an artist, but he didn't really have a chance. He. He left school at a young age and um, sort of worked his way through school, was just beginning to study art and had to sort of give up that, that dream. And he talked about leaving um, Syria and all he had with him was, was his two paintbrushes. And he, you know, has, has made it to Germany as a refugee with nothing, essentially, and is beginning to paint there. But that, that's sort of a, a dissonant, you know, artist we think of as people who are really sort of making it big and have recognition for their art. But I think that's also interesting to think about people who are sort of, um, you know, struggling, who had a certain proclivity and maybe wanted to um, express that, that part of themselves and that talent and didn't have a chance for economic reasons as well as any other sort of political reasons. And now, given the complete shakeup of the environment, maybe... Are they getting a chance or, or not? This this particular man is in some in some ways after uh, a really you know economically really troubled uh, sort of path. Um, but I, I salute you for doing that work because I think it's it's really important and a very fruitful realm and a window through which to 
think about and analyze all sorts of different phenomena and dynamics. Um, about mainstream journalism, again, I'll probably defer to people who study, you know, d d journalism media and media for, for, uh, for, for a living. Where was, where was that asked? Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there, there is some really good journalism out there, too. I mean, for example, I, I felt Anne Bernard from the New York Times, I think her reporting is great. I think like, a lot of this from The Guardian and is, is doing great work, too. Um, so, uh, but, but you're right, there is a, there's, there's been a dominant uh, shift in discourse about ISIS and extremism and, uh, you know, proxy wars and that sort of thing. So I think there is there is good j journalism, and maybe I've now dug and find what I like, and that's what I stick to, and block out the rest because it's too infuriating. But um, I don't I don't I don't know in terms of there is a there is what people call this Syria fatigue. I don't know if it's because of the um, of a of a, the uh, of the failure of journalism, I don't know if it's the, from the failure of the public not not engaging with the, the good journalism out there as much as they should. Um, I'm not sure where the where the problem lies that people aren't outraged and out into the streets, and this is not you know galvanizing the world outcry that it should, given the sheer enormity of of um, of the disaster, of the humanitarian catastrophe, of the kind of violence. I mean, the sheer atrocities that are unfolding and have been day after day for years. I don't know what the problem is, if it's at the level of politics, if it's at the level of media, if it's at the level of publics that are disengaged and, and, um, and don't want to be bothered by, by crises happening, happening on the other type of the, of the world. I'm not sure, but there's something that I think is deeply wrong um, with how the world has not responded to to Syria, or how the world public has not. There are certainly lots of you know various parties that are responding and are intervening and are involved in all sorts of nefarious ways, but there's a, a lot of, of publics around the world that are not outraged, and I wish they were. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure, but I share, share the anger. Um, as far as the question of yeah, Reba saying, does, does the voice still exist? Yeah, would you like to go? Ahead? No, no. no I was just like I wanted to help you. Yeah. I think she's doing up my hand. Come on, yeah, okay, yeah. So I think yeah, 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 she's yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. She's now in Australia. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah. But the, but the, but the larger as a symbolic. Um, I mean, as, as a larger question of the voices of the millions who went out and found their voice. Where is that voice? I mean, I think it's it's been drowned out and torn apart by all sorts of political phenomena. It doesn't mean that people's voice is still there, but the but the process of translating voice into political change of the voice and the willingness to sacrifice and the real sacrifice having that the link between that and achieving a political goal that link. Was was broken. That link was was um, was quashed. That link was that link was fought. And I think that's the story of, of the politics of of all of this and how it unfolded. So, what? Yeah. And where? Um, it, so both what happened to that voice and what happened to that that solidarity and patriotic unity that now sees all of these different groups with different agendas now fighting each other and, and so forth, for a long time fighting each other. And I think that there, there are various different factors that you can see that how things unfolded the way they did. I mean, one, I th it was clearly that the level of, of violence and the kind of violence from the regime responding to these 
these protests, um, the sheer you know, brutal repression um, that the opposition was under from from the very start. It would be heroic to sustain any sort of uprising, no less achieve its goals and maintain its ethos under the weight of that of that um, counter revolution, counter assault. I mean, there are also the failures of the political opposition outside the country and so forth to well represent and structure and organize and express a clear political goal um, that would do service and justice to the sacrifices people on the ground were willing to make to link up the ground and link up the political voice that could pass on a message. Uh, and the failure of the world to respond, um, to protect civilians, to stand by the principles of never again to atrocities, to responsibility, to protect. And I think in the space for, for many activists who then took up arms and so forth, facing these failures, facing the violence of the regime, the failure of the external political opposition, the failure of the world, you could see the logical unfolding of, 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 of why this might take go in various directions, and of course the various interpenetrations of different actors with their different patrons with their own goals and their own agendas that maybe had very little to do with the original civic goals of the uprising and money and arms um, leading to that proliferation of, of agendas. I think you can, you can you know, sort of trace out all these different factors that brought things to the dark and really tragic place <laughs> they are and how far that is from what people, you know better than I do, thought they were going out for when they went out for in the beginning. And that's, I mean, the, um, the I, tragedy of it. Could I add please. something? I think I agree yeah, yeah. with what you're saying, but I also think one of the untold stories about the conflict are the women activists that are working right now. Absolutely, yeah. And whether we're talking about Yara Bader in Berlin and the court cases they're trying to, to initiate through the German courts against the Assad regime officials, whether we're talking about Women Now for Development Absolutely. that have activists on the ground in Ghouta, in basements in Ghouta, who actually have activists working, women activists working in Idlib, yes. a city that has changed enormously yes. with the fall of various parts of the country and the fighters are all being shipped there. Um, so, I mean, I think that's the really untold story now. And I think that if people are interested, there's a, you know, you can look and find out about it. There are nonviolent women's organizations that are working. The question I think now, one of the questions I feel now that needs to be answered is that where are the civil society organizations at the peace talks? Yes, what yes. is the agenda in the civil society room uh, right now as they try to get to the peace table? And how is it that you have women activists and people, you know, stuck in Eastern Ghouta in the basement or fleeing Eastern Ghouta, whereas uh, Jaysh al-Islam is able to send their prisoners out to Idlib? So there are some really key, uh, I, yeah. yes, all this has happened in series in a really bad place, but there is still activism to be done, and there are still women who are doing it. And to sort of, to not, and, and that's a story that no one is telling. No one is putting it in a concise place where we can get at it. And that's, uh, everybody needs to work on, on that. No, I, thank you, thank you very much. Because it's, it's easy to be, just see the darkness. And there's absolutely, there's, I yeah. mean, there are activists who work day in, day out, inside Syria and outside Syria to continue to, for this dream and to continue serving communities and to, 
you know, realize the, the hope of a better, of a better future. So that, I, thank you for that deserves absolutely the credit and attention. Yeah. We have only five minutes left, so yeah, just I'll we'll have faster. two questions, three questions. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> just quickly. Yeah. Hi. Okay. I don't have a quick question. Okay. <laughs> Sermon, but I'll try to keep it short, yeah. So um, my first question is, um, how come the Arab Spring caught many, so many experts by surprise? Mm. And my re relevant related question is, um, 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 uh, basically Syria had a, a political occupation of Lebanon, and that was also invisible in, I don't know, here, in Europe. So. Mm -hmm. Surely, deserve you know it's not a new thing. They just, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know how to say how to say it in words. But it was people keep saying about the media. I, I study anti-Arab and anti-Jewish racism in the new, in the in the Guardian and Independent. Actually, there was a Guardian a Guardian reporter here who mm -hmm. left the room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so uh, yeah. So um, it just it's not new. I think I think it's been around for many many decades. Uh -huh. So. Uh, I don't what you're do you saying mean? You don't, yeah. What is new? No. Uh, sorry, um, why is there no interest in Syria? Oh. Okay, so I, I think because maybe so there was never any... Do you think before, do you mean before the revolution there was no interest so in Syria? So basically Syria had the political occupation of Lebanon, it basically controlled yes. Lebanon, and nobody Until even knew about it here. Yeah. Yes. Yes. yes, it was yes. completely invisible, and it was very comic when they withdrew their, their troops, mm -hmm. when suddenly it was a news item when it actually finished, anyway. Um, last question is um, the, the, the what can people are interested in what's going on in Gaza and the impossible, well, there is an a humanitarian disaster now but even can, get, can get even worse. What does people like that uh, have to, you know, can learn from the current chaos in, in Syria, which could be matched in Gaza. We can see, you know, anything can happen in Gaza from cholera, et cetera. Can I just one last question? No, no, uh, sentence, I know. What do you mean by Gaza? How do you mm -hmm. kind of yeah. relate it here? Um, well, Ga there's a humanitarian disaster in, in Gaza and obviously in Syria. But well, uh, but there is kind of uh, Palestinian but struggle, but here we have, if, if I may kind of, mm. trying to structure the question. Okay. So, uh, yeah, the question is what can people are worried about that things in Gaza are gonna just going to get a lot, a lot worse? can gain from the experience of Syria. And I just can I say one, one, one thing. You said you don't understand what's wrong with people not interested. Mm -hmm. I think, I'm just looking at the crowd here, and I assume there's 90% of the people here that have a mobile phone, it's ca probably costs more than 500 dollars or 500 pounds. Mm. And I think everything, everything that's coming out of Syria is challenging all of my decisions during every day. Mm. Like, mm -hmm. and I, I keep having Syria in my mind, and it's really upsetting, you know, it's upsetting yeah. to be me when I know for so many years people are like, I don't know, the whole country is dissolving, and I'm originally from Israel, so I kind of feel a bit of a neighborly care for Syria in a way, yeah, weirdly, but yes. And um, so I think, I think Syria is super challenging for the kind of consumer society mm -hmm. that's, you know, just have no place for that, you know, and it's sad, but that's, and maybe we can chat after that. I, I have some ideas of how that can be bridged anyway. Okay, yeah, 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 we'll keep oh it there. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, one more question? This young woman here, mm -hmm. yeah, okay. she's been holding she's up been her hand sorry. all the while. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Yes. 
Hello, uh, I'm Syrian, and I'll be asking this question uh, according to my position as a Syrian and as an academic trying to see how effective transnational activism is mm. to the Syrian revolution. Uh, like, Syrians needed to their voice to be heard, and now it's heard all around the world, but it didn't, like, result in anything strategic. Now, like, it's the eighth year of the revolution, the war, the conflict, and like there is hope, but it seems like for me, it seems like it will be uh, within another hundred years. Uh, hundred years, not like I won't see it. Even my uh, my children may may not see it. So, how do you think uh, like something like this book that documents all all the suffering and all the drama and all the struggle can be utilized in order to create a significant uh, change or effect, uh, influence? The, the decision uh, making in, in regarding to Syria. Thanks. Yeah. Is that, is that, uh, wow. Again. Um, so I'll I'll start with the the second question. I mean, in in many ways, I, you know, I wrote the book as an American, thinking of the average American reader. I'm a professor. I thought of my students. I thought of community members, with, you know, to whom I give talks and things. And I thought of this sort of the average American reader who. who it's like, you know, Syria, I see it in the news, and um, something terrible is happening there, and people are really suffering, but I don't understand. It seems so complicated. Who is fighting whom? There's this ISIS thing, and I just don't quite understand. So I so primarily thinking of writing a book of how someone like that could try to understand. It's really <laughs> not so complicated. <laughs> to make a book that... I hoped would, in a non-intimidating way, with a lot of, not a lot of theory and a lot of complicated politics and analysis, in a very human way, help someone to try to have a better sense of what this conflict is about and care and be moved on a human level to try to imagine what would it be like if I were there? Would I protest or not? Would I flee or not? Would I take up arms or not? To try to ask the questions and provoke some sort of empathy so that people would care enough to want to to do something, whether it's donate money or get volunteered or call a representative or go out into the streets. So in some ways, uh, my primary uh, objective in writing the book was to try to move a Western public that I thought was not moved in the way that it should. And um, I think and, the book yeah. definitely does that. Yeah. And I think yeah. that there's a real interest. There's something that's not apparent in Britain, yeah. but there's a real interest in the U.S. and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. They are not totally cold to it. And they're not—they're not totally disengaged. They're kind of curious about how come they're involved, and how come the wars and civil strife have been going on there for so long. So books like yours, I think, are very important for that debate, for the, to, to engender that dialogue. Thanks. I mean, it should just shake people on an emotional level, so that they could then hopefully clearly see the political path of taking some sort of action. I mean, in some ways, a secondary objective might be just to document the history. Um, I mean, I've also, also had you know, some, some Syrian individuals who actually participate in some of these events read parts of the book and say, you know, I feel like I'm beginning to forget. I'm beginning to forget those details. So much has happened in the past seven years. Forget some of the, the, um, the little daily details of life. So, so people don't forget. Those who lived or for future generations of Syrians, and this is just one spot. I hope that many other people, whether people are writing their own memoirs or expression in various forms of art, or people continue to do work of this sort, to document for history, I think is important so that 
I mean, I'm just, this is just one speck, really, I think, mm -hmm. Syrians engaging Absolutely. in their own process of, of writing a history that maybe Syrians haven't had the chance to write yet to come to terms with what it means to be Syrian and, and, and a future. Um, but, but otherwise, the, the, the challenge for really making change um, is, is, is large, and a book can only do, do so much. But, um, but, but understanding and empathy, I think, are fundamental in, in any sort of transnational struggle. Yeah. And also, yeah. I, I really do believe that you have to, the book has to be on stage or on radio. I would I'd be, I think that you can, I think that you can, I really believe you can make that happen. Uh -huh. That the book itself has that power, it lends yeah. itself to that. And that there's something about public performance yes. or people hearing it, not in a seminar or at a book launch, yeah, yeah. where they hear it late at night or as yes. a podcast or as an audio book, yeah. there are many ways that are open for your book if you push it that way. Because uh -huh. I think the book is a kind of activism. Uh -huh. And the way that you've edited and your, your impetus to do it, it is about activism. Yeah, no, it, was, it was certainly it was an act of solidarity, of, of um, knowing my position, what I could offer is solidarity, and that was it. So no, thank you. I'll, I'll talk to you more about that. But that's just another way of saying that this is just, I mean, what I was, I was just had a series of conversations with Syrians in different places, um, at different points of time. There's so many more personal stories. So these, these could be staged, but also hundreds, millions, unlimited numbers of other stories. You probably have a story that you could get up and, and tell, and others could too. So hopefully it's just the beginning I mean, not, not, it's not even the beginning. It's already a long process. Long it's one, process. It's one, one step along the process of having these voices um, uh, just be, be amplified and be expressed in different forms so that, that people hear them. Yeah. Oh, I mean, sort of. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as quickly as I as I can, there was a lot. There was a lot there. Um, we said on the, the first question of how come the Arab Spring surprised experts. Um, I mean, it's a it's a great. I think revolutions generally, you know, surprise people. And then after the fact, everyone can can offer these very sophisticated. Oh, uh, ex you know, answers about why it was verge of happening, and of course, of all these developments and so forth. Oh, it was just bound to happen. But at the time, I don't think there was a soul on the on the planet that that wasn't that wasn't surprised. And I think that's that's really the nature of revolutions, and that's something that we haven't quite cracked. Um, and that many sort of experts, I can speak in terms of the political science realm, um, invested. So, uh, almost a generation of a focus of the study in, of Middle East politics was on explaining durable authoritarian regimes, and people had full explanations yeah. of why these regimes that, yeah. with, with despite, yeah, despite yeah. discontent and despite their failures in so many ways, continued on. Was it the manipulation of elections or yeah. ruling parties or security apparatuses or business state business relations? We became so sophisticated in explaining. The durability of authoritarian regimes that maybe we didn't see the um, in maybe ways I think it also maybe just took um, publics for granted and the citizens for granted and their own courage and their own ability to inspire us that all the incentives were such that everybody would go along with the system and and didn't appreciate the degree to which people could reach a point where they say enough yeah. in maybe spite of it all in spite of the risks in spite of everything. I'll stand up for my freedom and my dignity, and I'll go out, go out in the streets, and and, and say no. Yes, <laughs> and so that um, I think, and that's that's a spark of the human spirit, which what I find fascinating. Not I think only 
surprised all experts, but what really interests me is when it surprises people themselves and people do things that they maybe never thought that they could do. And that, I think, is just what makes human beings so fascinating. So I'll maybe leave it there. So it's a, it's a tribute to the human spirit and the strength of the human will um, that people can do the unimaginable. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much, all. Yeah. Um, I shall remind you that the book is sold outside yeah. if you want to buy it. Um, and I'll and be happy to sign it, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you Thank you very much, all. Thank you. That was great.